Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Jason Schulman, and this is New Books in Australian and New Zealand Studies. My guest today is Christina Toomey. She's a professor of history at Monash University. She's here to talk about her new book, The Battle Within, POWs in Postwar Australia. It's published by New South Books in February 2018. Christina, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So, Christina, how did you get interested in the topic of POWs? Do you have a, a personal connection to the military? Yes, I do. I spent part of my childhood in Malaysia as part of the Air Force community on Butterworth. And we lived on the island of Penang. And there was a real consciousness there among the community that people just like us had been taken prisoner during the Second World War by the Japanese. And during my childhood, we went and visited Kanchanaburi, which is one of the places on the Thai Burma Railway. But that was a really unusual thing to do in the late 70s, early 80s. And there really wasn't that much attention paid to the experiences of POWs in Australia at that time. And then fast forward to 30, 40 years later, uh, POWs have become almost like the veterans par excellence. They were everywhere. People knew about their experiences. And I guess I began to wonder why there was this period in which uh, we didn't know that much about them and then a time when we knew a lot about them. So I, I set out to explore that issue. And can you tell us a little bit about where you looked for sources? I know uh, one of the areas that you looked at were memoirs. Were, were there archival resources that you found particularly uh, interesting? There were. There were a lot of published POW memoirs. And I guess I should say that POWs were very well known in the 40s and 50s in Australia, but it was that period of quiet between the sort of 60s, 70s and 90s that I set out to explore. And I found in the archives in Australia the papers of a trust fund set up in the 50s called the POW Trust Fund, where prisoners of war could write in and describe how captivity had had an ongoing impact on their lives. And that was an astonishing archival base that really formed the spine of the book in the end. 
So the book tells the story of some thousands of Australian prisoners uh, who were released from uh, camps um, in World War II. And, and the title is The Battle Within. Uh, it looks at both the individual and the collective battles uh, that POWs had to face in rebuilding their lives. How did you kind of think to come up with that level of, of analysis? The, the title itself, The Battle Within, came from a letter that a former prisoner had written to this trust fund where he said, People don't understand that former prisoners have to overcome the battle within ourselves to to rehabilitate. And I thought, wow, that phrase really captures the two things I'm trying to do in this book. I wanted to write both a social history of how prisoners overcame the the experience of captivity and began to reintegrate into their families and communities and workforce and so on. But I also wanted to analyse the broader struggle that POWs had to be accepted as veterans who were worth commemorating because in the early years the army and the government were totally uninterested in drawing any particular attention to the war experiences of prisoners. For those who may not be familiar, maybe you can tell us a bit about um, what RSL is or RSL branches are, uh, what they did and, and what their limits were. So the RSL is the Returned Services League. It's it's the veterans organisation in Australia. And it would be fair to say that in the interwar period and after the Second World War, they were a hugely powerful lobby group. And they they actually took POWs under their wing and tried to argue for compensation for them from the government. But the greatest stumbling block for prisoners of war was really the army who had no interest in either commemorating or compensating them. And that received its fullest expression, I suppose, when uh, there was a government inquiry in 1950 into whether POWs ought to be compensated beyond the usual repatriation measures for their suffering. And the army basically did its best to kill any idea that POWs ought to be compensated. And they made a very powerful, and for the people who were chairing the commission, convincing argument that if POWs were to be compensated, that it would be a disincentive to future generations of soldiers to fight on. So therefore not in the national interest to compensate them. And then in October 1915, um, Robert Menzies announces the formation of the Prisoners of War Trust Funds, which you mentioned uh, that really interesting archival um, collection that you that you looked at. Um, can you tell us just a bit more about what the Trust Fund was set up to do, um, how it operated, and, and some of the criticisms that it received? So the Trust Funds operated... Um, in order to provide cash payments in the order to a maximum of about £500 to prisoners who are suffering ongoing disadvantage as a consequence of their captivity. So they're required to complete this fool's cap form that asks them for details of not just their imprisonment experience but what exactly is wrong with them now. And... The application form caused quite a lot of controversy because it asked prisoners not just details of their medical situation but details of their financial situation, um, their personal details, and many former prisoners and the RSL 
found this incredibly invasive because their idea was there should be a general compensation payment, not this kind of um, inquisition that meant that prisoners were judged on a case-by-case individual basis about their own personal circumstances and many people felt like it resembled the practices of private charities and keep in mind in the early 1950s memories of the depression are still pretty fresh in people's mind so anything that smacks of charitable assistance doesn't really go down that well so already there's a there's a bit of a negative feeling about the type of application form that's required and then there's quite a lot of tension around the sorts of judgments that trustees pass on applicants to the fund and I think it would be fair to say that the trustees really turned their own values and own sense of respectability and morality on people who applied to fund. So you know, men who are living a pretty unanchored life, who have struggled with employment, who have no money, who are living in pretty destitute situations, are often judged very harshly by the trustees as being people who are dissolute, who are alcoholic, who couldn't be trusted with the money that they might get from a grant because they're likely to go to a pub and spend the whole lot on drink. So it's quite a problematic little re- interaction between the between the applicants and the trustees. Can you tell us a little bit about um, how masculinity fits into the story? Most of the POWs that you look at were men. Uh, you know, how important was it that they were trying to rebuild their lives within the context of kind of defining what it meant to be an Australian man? I think that tracks back to why POWs were such ambivalent figures in the first place. So I think it's necessary to understand that. POWs do elicit quite a lot of public sympathy when they're first released, particularly POWs of the Japanese who've had a particularly hard time, most of them. But the the context into which they're returning is of this Anzac legend. So the Anzac mythology, if you like, it describes the behaviour of Australian soldiers in wartime. They're meant to be these fine physical specimens who are particularly brave and strong fighters. And you can immediately see how that's very tied up with a particularly masculine sense of identity. And then you think of the experience of prisoners who are defeated soldiers who've been taken prisoner in the case of Japan by an Asian captor in an era when Australia is still a largely uh, quite racist society that doesn't um, view Asian peoples as kind of equal to themselves, if you like. So to be taken prisoner immediately puts the prisoner of war at odds with a very particular Anzac-driven version of Australian masculinity. They're, you know, they're defeated, many of them are emaciated, so it's quite a contradiction to this mythology um, that they've grown up with. The way they're ultimately incorporated back into Anzac is through the the narrative of mateship because one of the other defining elements of Anzac is that, you know, Australians are really good mates and they have a commitment to mateship and the, the, um, the way it's told is that 
POW survive in the camps, those who do survive, survive because of the values of mateship and grouping together and sharing and looking after one another. So they do end up being incorporated back into ANZAC, but there's always this shadow about their masculinity. And in the in the applications to the trust fund that I looked at, so many of uh, the applicants talk about how they felt like they hadn't lived up to the standards of the Australian soldier, that people still looked down on them for being defeated and captured in the war. And that was something I just really didn't expect to find, people articulating exactly how their experience had been quite literally emasculating. I want to talk about more recent turning points. Uh, so, so what happens in the 1980s that kind of turns the tide uh, and POWs start to be seen as more worthy uh, veterans, as it were? Uh, and then what happens in the 2000s when kind of the nature of war changes? How are Australian um, servicemen and women kind of featured and how are POWs looked at? In the 1980s, a couple of things happen, I think. The, the main thing is the coming online of the PTSD diagnosis. And that's a key turning point in many ways because it's necessary to remember the way what was once called war neurosis or in the First World War shell shock operated because war neurosis, the way war neurosis was treated in the post-war period, assumed that anybody who had a psychiatric or a psychological reaction to war, who had a, a neurotic reaction or some kind of mental problems afterwards, were people who already were somehow frail or damaged or carried some kind of weakness within them and that war had triggered it. Whereas once the PTSD diagnosis is, is um, embraced by the psychiatric community and made a, made a feature of the psychiatric um, diagnostic toolkit, if you like, uh, that PTSD diagnosis has has at its heart the fact that the the sufferer has been exposed to such an astonishing series of events or one experience that they have become damaged as a result. So you can immediately see it takes away that sense of blame. It takes away the, the shame of being a victim by implying that there was nothing wrong with these people in the first place, that it's the, the event itself that, that causes them psychological harm. And so it really ushers in new understandings and new empathy for victims. And you can see that right across the culture. It's not just, not just in relation to prisoners of war. There's a whole new wave of confessional memoir-type publications that talk about how people have been victims in a way that has this new empathy around what being a victim means. So I think that was a really important turning point for prisoners of war of Japan. And one of the other issues that that sort of takes hold by the 2000s is that Australia has a much more mature relationship to its region, if you like, and the POWs of Japan were always um, figured quite problematically in relation to Japan itself. So there was a lot of anger and hostility to Japan in the immediate post-war period 
And by the 2000s, that's really died away. And, and also the likelihood that large numbers of prisoners are going to be captured in any future conflict is virtually erased by the nature of modern warfare. There's never really going to be that experience again of thousands and thousands of service people being captured by a foreign enemy because warfare is not really like that anymore in terms of vast numbers of ground troops. So the armies fear that if you compensated prisoners of war or commemorated them, um, that that would discourage people from fighting on. That context is gone now too because the nature of warfare itself has changed. Christine, I want to thank you so much for being on the show today. That's Christina Toomey. She's a professor of history at Monash University. Her new book is called The Battle Within, POWs in Postwar Australia. It's published by New South Books in February 2018. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>